Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you uh, for inviting me to your platform. Uh, it's a real pleasure uh, to be here and 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 to talk to you. Um, as for my sort of family background, my family originally came from West Punjab in Sialkot, Daska, which is now in Pakistan. And my family actually were one of the sort of the earliest um, Sikh uh, migrated family to the UK. My my grandfather came in 1936, so that was pre-partition. Um, so our family presence has been um, over 80, 80 years in the UK. Uh, my grandfather was a, was a doctor, uh, but like many of the um, early Sikhs um, who came uh, to the UK at that time, uh, the 30s, 40s, and uh, 50s, um, he took up the the peddling trade, uh, which many of the um, Punjabi community was doing, which was selling basically uh, haberdashery and household uh, goods door to door in the rural areas. Um, so that's a bit about my my grandparents. Um, my 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 father obviously was um, back in India at that time. My granddad bought him here, and my mum's side um, also a very early migrant family. They came in the 1940s, just after partition, and, and my mum was uh, born in the UK. Um, probably not. Not it wasn't necessarily for the the um, the education side of it, but it was I mean he was uh, very. It's quite old. Um, my my grandfather's by that time he had sort of retired from from doctory, um, but uh, he used to come here. A lot of my other uncles were also in the UK in the nineteen thirties, and and peddling was a, a real profitable trade at that time. Um, as I said, um, many of the majority of the Punjabi community, even um, Shahid Ulam Singh, when he came to the UK uh, at that time, um, stayed with uh, Punjabi peddlers and did peddling himself. Well, I did want to elaborate more on this in um, in my question later on when we talk about Sikhs in Britain, because it was a real uh, it was a real influence and it was a real um, uh, uh, benefit for me of having this background to doing the Sikhs in Britain book. So it really helped me because um, I knew many of the old families in the UK um, who were here sort of pre-war. It was for work. Um, he came because obviously a lot of his uncles and his cousins were also here at the time. Uh, they were working here. So they, they came, he came with them. And um, obviously then partition happened and, and many of the, the peddlers went back to uh, shift their homes from West to East Punjab. And when obviously we were uprooted from Sialkot, my grandfather thought, look, we're, we're going to India anyway, but we've got to shift the family. We've lost everything, all our lands, et cetera, in, in Sialkot. Um, so we thought, let's shift the whole family to the UK. 
So I don't think the, there wasn't the intention of moving to the UK at that time. The, when he used to come in the 30s, it was just strictly for work. But I think partition caused him to rethink um, uh, the, the, the rehousing of the family. And that's why uh, the family ended up in the UK. Well, we've come from a very strong Sikhi family. Uh, my ancestors were with the Nihang missile, which were Baba Deep Singh's missiles. So most of my, all my sort of ancestors, um, more than the Farla, they were all sort of Nihangs in, in previous generations. Um, Sialkot is well known for um, the Nihang missile. Uh, the Natha Singh Shaheed was uh, an eminent uh, general uh, uh, under Baba Deep Singh. And his samadhi is, is still uh, in, in Sialkot. And Sikhi was very much instilled with us here. Um, and I touch with all of our, all my, my cousins and, and um, our brothers and, uh, and poor fathers were all been uh, um, Sikhs. And so we was always told about our Sikh history. Even as a young age, my father would always tell us about our Sikh history. But I myself, although I'm a marketing student and, and, I, and I studied marketing, uh, I always enjoyed history. And it was something I always read up on uh, as a hobby rather than uh, a profession or for uh, academic reasons. So it's something which, which was always with me, but something I enjoyed as well uh, as, as a hobby. Well, it's quite a story because we had a, a university trip, a student union trip to Norfolk uh, in, in the 90s. It was uh, sort of the late 90s, uh, I think 96 or 97. And uh, we were going to going to Norfolk and there's a, a few uh, Punjabi boys virtuals in the group as well. And I said, look, on the way, because we were on the A11, I said, let's let's stop on um, at Helvedon because on the route. And I always I always knew about it. I said, never been there. And I said, it'd be just just fascinating to see, you know, uh, the Leap Singh's uh, grave and, and maybe get a glimpse of Elverdon Hall. And so, so we stopped there. So I remember it's a rainy day. We quickly made a pit stop. Uh, ran into the churchyard trying to find this grave and uh, we find it and I photographed ourselves and the intention was just to pho photograph myself there and so we've been there and and then jump in uh, back in the car heading to Norwich uh, but uh, an elderly lady uh, a local lady came up to us and said um, we've you know a lot of your community visit the Maharaja all the time and did you know there's a museum in the local town which we were totally unaware of and um, all I can say is, you know, 30 minutes later, uh, I was standing inside what I could call, uh, I only call a, a shrine to the Leap Singhs. I found that this museum had been founded by Prince Frederick the Leap Singh, the Maharaja's second son, um, who had not only donated the the, the building and, and uh, 
the museum to the town, but he also gave a lot of his family collection um, so the museum could start off um, exhibiting. And I, me and my colleagues, we, we spoke to the, the curator, uh, and it's the same curator who's there today, so he's been there around uh, sort of 25 years. And um, I asked him, I said, is there anything about the children? Because I, I never knew the Leap Singh had, had, had children. It was all new to me. And he said, look, we haven't got any books on, on, the, on the children. We've got books on Maharaja Dalip Singh, which was the Michael Alexander book called Queen Victoria's Maharaja. And I thought, well, this is something that I should, you know, delve into myself because I was so fascinated that Maharaja had, had married and, and had these uh, had six children who lived in Norfolk. And I, um, as a British-born Sikh, had never heard of them. So I placed a series of ads in the local uh, newspaper in Norfolk and in Suffolk. Uh, and it was like a, a letter to the editor. And over the coming months, I had an enormous, enormous response. Around 300 people replied to me. And these were people who um, had, whose family had worked for the Maharaja. Uh, there were people who were still around who remembered Bamba, uh, Frederick, uh, Sophia, because um, you've got to remember, look, Bamber had only had only died 40 years earlier. Sophia had died what, 55 years earlier, and Frederick had died just about 70 years earlier. So there were still a lot of people who remembered uh, the the Maharaja's children, and many of them wrote to me and said, "Look, um, do come and see us, or we have this and we have that, and uh, belonging to the Maharaja or, or his children." And I. No, started just just for my own curiosity. Started visiting them. I, I recorded some of them as well, and many of them brought out objects, photographs, or books, etc., which or gifts that the family had given to them. And um, they, they showed them to me, and they said, "Look, no, it's of no use to us. You know, our, our, our children won't appreciate it, or whatever. And if you, if you want, you can you can take these uh, keepsakes." And um, I started gathering these and most of them just gave me the stuff, which was brilliant. Some said, look, how much do you want to uh, how much do you want to pay us for this? And, you know, you, you can have this. And that's sort of where my my collecting sort of uh, the aspect of the Dalip story came into place. That's where I started compiling uh, my collection of artifacts associated with Dalip Singh uh, in, in the late 90s. And as obviously my um, my interest grew. I placed more and more ads in the local paper, meeting more people. And I literally had a whole source of, you know, whole, whole folders full of letters and, and documents uh, with information on the family, which nobody had known about. And if it wasn't recorded or written down, um, perhaps it would have been lost forever. And um, a friend of mine at that time said to me, look, Peter, you've done all this work. You really, you really need to look at getting the work published so it's out in the public domain. And it took me around three or four years to find uh, a, a publisher. I just wrote to all the publishing houses who I thought would, uh, would cater for this particular market or this subject. And then um, all of a sudden, one day, just at home, this letter arrived from a, a major publishing house. said, look, uh, we're doing a series of various royal families around the world. And we're really interested in doing um, a book on um, the Maharaja Dalip Singh uh, and his family. And um, I was just over the over the moon, and, um, and I visited them, and, and and that's where my sort of journey began into um, into writing and becoming an author.
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had no intention of writing a book. If, if anything, I used to hate. If I'm, if I'm honest, I didn't used to like reading as a, as a child at school, as a student at school. And I, I never sort of imagined myself 10 years later to, to be writing a book, um, especially a, a, a non-fiction a, a book, or a history book on, on the Maharaja's life. So, yeah, it was a real turnaround of events. Well, I always, as I said, I always liked history, world history. So I enjoy reading. Even today, I, I like to read about different countries, about the, the the Russian Empire and the Ottomans, etc. So I've always enjoyed history and watching uh, sort of um, historical uh, documentaries, etc. But at that point in my life, I had actually never been to India, and the Leap Singh's history was an aspect of Punjab or Sikh history I could research uh, without having. To go to India, so I could do it right here in the UK because the Maharaja lived the majority of his life in, in Europe. So this was a fantastic way for my personal journey to, to to research a part of Punjab history which was not in Punjab, if you know what I mean, because I'd never I'd never been to India at that point in my life. Um, so it was so it was doing I was doing some Punjabi history uh, research, um, and um, obviously the Leap Singhs, you know, is the majority of his life was spent here. It was it was very new, and just going to Norfolk, visiting these families. And it wasn't just about getting the objects because that came obviously as I did my research, but it was more about getting the history behind that object and how they had it and how and how they knew the family or what their relationship to the, the Leipzig family was and, and, and the personal anecdotes. And um, for, for example, I, I met somebody who said to me, look, um, my my grandfather was was really ill, um, had a, a spinal condition, and Prince Frederick bumped into him one day and uh, inquired about him and said, "Look, I'll buy you the spinal chair." And he even sent my uh, my grandfather to America uh, to get him the treatment. So here was a family who was totally indebted to the, the Leipzig family for what he had done, and he hadn't forgotten it, which was great. And 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 these sort of stories would never have come out to the mainstream because it's just a just a simple Norfolk countryman who's had uh, assistance uh, for a spinal condition. And for me, those little anecdotes, those little stories um, spoke volumes about the family. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, th- I think the the local Norfolk and, and Suffolk and East Anglia community uh, really holds them in very high esteem, more than probably we uh, uh, us Punjabi communities do. Uh, there's the, the, the communities are, are really indebted to some of them. And there's uh, obviously they are referred to as the super siblings in, in East Anglia, which we probably never heard that phrase there. But if you talk to people up there, they say, "Oh, the super siblings," because Frederick was a great benefit benefactor to the East Anglia community. Uh, he was a historian. He was an archaeologist. He was a collector of local art, and and he helped so many buildings, especially churches, uh, from closing down because they because at that time churches and historical buildings were out of funds for re- restoration, and not not only did he fund restoration, he gathered funds for them. He he, he did charity work to raise money, and he overlooked the conservation and uh, preservation of any of the churches, and even today I'm working on a lot of these churches and we're actually getting plaques. Put on on these churches to uh, commemorate Prince Frederick's uh, contribution uh, to saving or helping this church. And in 2019, one of the one of the finest churches that he saved was Thompson Church. Um, they contacted me and said, "Look, uh, we uh, we're doing a, a current day restoration work on the on the church, and part of that uh, restoration, we want to install a memorial plaque to Prince Frederick because." He saved this church from clo- closing down in 1913, and I, I helped design and I funded a, a memorial plaque, and we had, um, which was, um, God, I, I've forgotten the name of the the the, the chap we had um, to come and uh, op- open up. I'll have to come back to that part. <laughs> but we actually had the 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 memorial plaque uh, unveiled at Thompson, um, and a great amount of lo- local folk came down to see it, and it was in, in the media. So just shows you how much, even today, how much people remember uh, remember the family. And uh, another one would be Catherine, who Princess Catherine is often forgotten, but she's actually referred to as the Indian or, or, or Punjabi Schindler because she saved so many Jews, uh, Jewish people from Nazi Germany. And I, in, in, in the 90s and early 2000s, I, I bumped into families, uh, Jewish families, who said, we owe our sheer existence to Princess Catherine. If it wasn't for her, we would not be here today. Uh, and she basically saved many families and vouched for their safe journey, um, gave them funds and even housed them at her property in Buckinghamshire during the course of the war. So a lot of hidden history. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Princess Catherine, throughout the late uh, late 1920s and uh, the 1930s, was actually living in Munich. Was actually living in Germany. Uh, so she basically lived in, in Munich and and, and in Kassel. And it's during this time, just before 
the things were really getting really bad in, in the late 1930s. Uh, and they knew a lot of the Jewish families were fleeing. And I'll give you an example of one particular episode, because I obviously I've met this family. And um, the family is the Hornstein family. Um, their grandchildren are still around, actually. They, they live in London. And their grandmother uh, basically uh, went crying into her doctor's surgery. And just so happened that that day, Princess Catherine was sitting in, in the surgery because that surgery belonged to her friend, uh, Dr. Schaefer. And the lady came in crying. And then when she left, uh, Princess Catherine asked uh, Dr. Schaefer, well, what's the matter with this lady? Why is she crying? And she explained to her that her husband uh, had been captured by the, the Gestapo. Um, and although he was a serving officer who had fought in the First World War and, and got the, uh, the the Iron Cross, um, but had been uh, arrested now as he was as he was was Jewish, and she went to the doctor obviously for help. And um, the story, the family story goes that um, the lady actually managed to speak to one of the senior Gestapo officers, and he said. Um, basically, because your husband had served uh, in the First World War and, and he was a decorated officer, if she could get someone to vouch for him and pay and, and basically fund uh, a voucher in England and, or voucher to get out of uh, Germany um, and, and, and secure his, uh, his ticket back, he would release um, her husband. So Princess Catherine said to uh, Dr. Schaefer, I'd be more than happy to assist um, and um, tell the lady to come and see me. And so that's what happened. She she assisted um, Mrs. Hornstein, and the first um, the first person to go was Mr. Hornstein. And after six months later, once Catherine herself had arrived in England, she called for the, the wife and their two children to arrive as well. And I was lucky enough to meet one of the children um, about uh, 20 years ago, a very old lady who I managed to, uh, to tape. So I recorded her, audio recorded her interview. Um, she sadly died, uh, died now, but I've, um, I, I'm very good, um, uh, become very good friends with her, her son, um, who's always, you know, gives, uh, gives me a call and pops into my office and we have long chats uh, about his family history because they've got a lot of family keepsakes um, as well, uh, which Princess Catherine had presented them. Yeah. Princess Catherine. Yeah. 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 I mean, at, at one point, there were so many um, Germans or uh, Jewish German people living at her house in Buckinghamshire, that the local people in the village were actually getting a bit scared, thinking where all these Germans arriving from, because we were obviously at war with Germany. Um, and there's a, a lovely photograph, which I'll share with you, showing you some of the German people sitting around Princess Sophia and Princess, uh, Princess Catherine uh, at the dinner table, um, you know, uh, dining together. And um, one of them was uh, Volgarioff, who was actually a violin player who the princess had saved and later on, he actually became very famous, a very famous violin player afterwards. So, um, and I'll, 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 share, I'll share the image with you.
So all three sisters were suffragettes. So they're all, all part of the movement. They all supported uh, the suffragette movement. And Sophia, obviously, in particular, was um, has got more credit, I think, out of the three sisters because she was much more active, as in she would be selling the votes for women newspaper outside Hampton Court. And because of her refusal to pay taxes and her belongings um, being repossessed and then resold uh, at auction uh, by the bailiffs. So she got more of the suffragette, um, as the suffragette uh, credit, but all, all three sisters were, were quite heavily invo- involved. But I first came to uh, know about the princess's um, involvement um, around 2000, 2001, when a lady had written a book um, called The Suffragettes, um, um, God, uh, for on behalf of the Museum of London. And she, um, Elizabeth Crawford, her name was, and she mentioned to me that um, there was a whole archive of material which the suffragette office um, sold when the office, uh, offices closed down. And I actually managed to contact um, one of the dealers who were actually involved um, in the, um, the on the buying of the suffragette items. And uh, when I spoke to her, um, and she said, yeah, there was a huge archive and the Museum of London bought all these images, but there were some images which were in really poor condition and they did not buy these. And one of them actually happened to be a portrait of Princess Sophia and Princess Catherine uh, at a suffragette dinner, uh, which I managed to buy from the lady. So I was really surprised why the Museum of London did not buy this part, uh, when, when, they, when they bought the rest of the collection. Um, so that sort of led my journey to find out more about Sophia and Catherine's uh, suffragette journey. And I um, spoke to the descendants of many of their suffragette colleagues. Um, and there were various letters in, in various suffragette letters uh, which mentioned uh, Sophia's activities. So uh, this was well before people actually found out about the suffragette movement in, in modern times because it all had been pretty much forgotten. And um, and then obviously Anitra Anand uh, wrote uh, more about the suffragette um uh, movement and and Sophia's involvement uh, later on, which was uh, which was great to see that uh, Sophia's story was actually was actually told. The, the children were, were brought up in England, uh, very much part of the part of British society. Uh, but each child had sort of their own view. But Bamba was very, very fiery, uh, especially towards the, the end of her life, towards the end of her life, um, uh, wrote uh, excessively to the India office, to the British, 
claiming that Nashi was the rightful heir and sovereign of the Punjab, and if the Punjab or India has ever made independent, Punjab should be reverted back to her. Whereas someone like Frederick was very much different. He was he he knew that uh, the Punjab had been annexed and it had been 50, 60 years ago. It's and it's all done and dusted. And he just wanted to live a, a peaceful life. Um, he enjoyed his his history. He enjoyed his archaeology. He enjoyed art, writing, and he focused most of his time and energy into that. And he really was a credit to East Anglia. I mean, that's he. They, they call him a uh, an Anglophile because that's what he was. And even till today, you know, we're talk, we're talking about what, 100, nearly a hundred years ago. You know, he's he's been he he died a hundred years ago, but he's still very much remembered. If you go to the village of Blown Alton, people will talk about him like if he, it was only yesterday that he was there. They still remember and recall him and you know, talk of him and say, "Oh, my my father knew him," or "My mother used to talk about this and, and this story." So, um, his his history and the way he. Um, uh, related to this was very much different to Bamba. Uh, again, Sophia was um, obviously a, a very radical suffragette. Um, not only did she assist the Indians because she she was there in the First World War, she nursed many of the, the Punjabi and Sikh soldiers at, at Brighton. Um, she would raise funds for the Indian soldiers. Um, she sent funds and, and, and gave to the charities in, in Punjab, in Jalandhar especially, to the girls' schools, etc. Uh, but she also had a very... Um, she was very. She was a party girl. She 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 loved the high society in Britain. Very much part of the uh, high society circle here as well. So she had a mix of both. So you know, she she wasn't that she was anti-British or pro-Indian. So she she had found herself that that mid middle level, whereas Bamba was more towards being uh, a very pro-Punjabi person and really felt for what her family had lost. Well, as we know, the Leap Singh's life was could be more best described as tragic, really. And as a youngster, his life was completely controlled by others. Uh, some say you could call him a, a, a puppet. You know, the you had the, the Darbar pushing him this way, the the um, his uncle Jawar Singh pushing him the other way. The British uh, wanted to control him, um, and 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 the same thing happened to him when he uh, as he got older in, in his fifties. Um, he he found that the the full sum or the promised 
a pension to him was never being paid. He fell out with the British over his uh, over his pension because the, the, the full sums weren't being received. And he basically took his family and tried to head to India. And as we know, he was arrested uh, at Aden. Um, and at that point, um, he sent his family back to England so he could sort of go on his, well, we could call it his, his rebellion against the British Empire. Uh, and again, when he arrives in Paris, because he's not allowed to go to India, so he arrives in Paris, and then you've got the, the Irish Fenians pulling him one way, you've got German intelligence, the French underworld, um, the agents of the Russian um, king um, enticing him uh, to Russia. So again, he was a puppet. Again, everybody wanted to use the Maharaja for his own gains. And a promise, which or a um, well, it is a promise, which, <laughs> which was um, put forward to him, was that if you come to Russia, the the, the king of Russia will will give him twenty thousand soldiers to march into India via Afghanistan. The um, the Irish Fenians would get the Irish regiments in the British Indian Army to rebel at the rear, and the uh, Sikhs in the Indian Army would rebel when they see the Maharaja facing them. I mean, it was a it was a ludicrous plan. It was never going to happen. And uh, when the Maharaj did arrive uh, in Moscow, he found out that the agents, uh, in particular Agent Katkov, who was going to arrange for him to meet the, the Tsar of Russia, uh, had died. Uh, so it was another plan which was which was, which was scarpered. The, the Maharaja came back to, to Paris, uh, and at that point, his health um, took a, a nasty turn. He had a stroke, and... Um, and that was the, the decline of the Maharaja, and uh, he ended up dying in Paris. So he never actually got to got to go to India. But I think the whole idea of actually causing or or starting this rebellion um, was a fan. I think it was a fantasy for him. It was it was never going to happen. <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. So uh, I, I think an interesting object is the personal notebook of Maharaja Dalip Singh. Uh, which I obtained from the granddaughter of the Maharaja's, um, uh, from uh, Prince of Bamba's personal companion. And what's 
interesting about this handwritten uh, notebook, it's got not only his finances, so we're, we're, again, it's showing that side of the Maharaja where, you know, he was born a, a king of a, a prince of Punjab who was destined to be uh, the successor of Ranjit Singh. And here is a man writing his finances of what's coming in and what's coming out. So he's had to control his money. Um, but the most interesting page comes halfway through the book when the Maharaja lists the names of the Ranis of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So he makes this list of around, in this book, he's made a list of around 53 uh, Ranis, uh, Maharanis of, of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. And on the side of those names, he's put the names of the children of Ranjit Singh, i.e. the sons. But what's really special is that he mentions the daughters of Ranjit Singh. And that's something we never talk about. We always talk about the seven sons or the sons of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. But um, in history, we always tend to, especially in Indian history, we always tend to mention the female line and the women. And the fact that this mentions the daughters, it shows that Ranjit Singh did have daughters. Um, so that, that's a very interesting uh, object for me because I think it shows, uh, you know, we're all human and that we should talk about and, we, and more research should be done into uh, the daughters of Ranjit Singh who are not even mentioned in, in contemporary books, even which were written by the British who visited the Lahore Dabar. So it's obviously they were kept kept back, but they were there. So that's one of my my, my key objects, which I, which I love. And I've accepted this um, at Thetford Museum. And it was also exhibited just before uh, um, the, the, the COVID pandemic last year uh, for a year at uh, Kensington Palace when they had the Queen Victoria Bicentenary Exhibition. Uh, another item, another favourite item of mine is the um, the Purdy uh, hunting gun uh, of Maharaja uh, Dalip Singh. He, he had a set of three uh, guns, and this is gun number three in its original box. And I'd been tracking these guns for years because I knew these guns existed. Um, I even found somebody who had owned all three guns, uh, which were found actually in one of the houses uh, belonging to Princess Bamba. And all three guns had been sold uh, in the 1960s for around £50, pounds, which which was quite a, a reasonable sum at that time. The three guns were sold for £50 pounds to a local farmer who then sold the other, kept the one he liked and sold the other two. And um, I actually met the farmer I did uh, about 20 years ago. And he said to me, God, I, I used that gun and it was that the gun had such a smooth action. And he told me that the other two had sold. And I finally tracked the, the third one down in, in the in the States. And um, I actually contacted the, the chap and I said, no, uh, would you sell the gun to me directly? And he was like, oh, no, this is, you know, I've been told uh, that this is the Leap Scenes gun and it's worth a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. And I, 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 I wanted to go to auction. So um, he, he put it in auction and... Um, I think you put it in the wrong auction because nobody bidded on it. And I ended up buying it um, less than 25% of um, what I had offered it to, offered to, to him for the gun. So that was a, 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 a real um, uh, feather in my cap. Uh, and it's, it's actually a beautiful piece. This is a proper exhibition piece. And each, um, each piece has got a serial number. And the Purdy gun is actually, uh, we can call it the Rolls-Royce of guns. Um, this gun, when it would take, 
around a year to make. It was handmade guns. Um, Purdy still make the same sort of handmade guns. And it would be the equivalent of, for, of that time, around three years wages to buy one gun. So it just showed you how much workmanship and, and what the price was to have this best boat gun made because it was made around the actual uh, person. So it was, it's according to your, your arm span, your height, your, 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 your body weight. So everything will be taken into account and this gun will be made around you to suit you. So it's, it's a very personalized item. Well, the notebook, uh, the Leipzig himself in his hand mentions 53. That's right, yeah. So there's seven sons, and um, I believe there's four daughters that I mentioned um, in the, I, I believe it's four. Um, and over the years, I've been told that there was an eighth son, and I've actually met the descendants of this so called eighth son as well. Um, so, um, it's very hard because obviously it's very difficult to do any DNA testing, etc. But um, but it's something which maybe for future scholars to look at. I think certainly to go down and um, find out who these daughters were and, and their names, because sadly the names are not mentioned of the daughters, just that they were daughters from such and such Rani. So to answer your first part, the are all items which are sold 
or, or, or Punjab or Sikh interest stolen, looted, or you know, uh, taken from the Punjab. Uh, and I would say no. And it's probably, I, I couldn't put a percentage in it, but I think it's probably less than 50%. Um, many of the items actually were, were sold, even the, the, the items from the Lahore Treasury were sold, auctioned at that time. And obviously many officers and generals purchased items as well uh, from the Lahore sales. But also many of the other stately rulers, the other Punjab chiefs and um, Maharajas of India, purchased items um, to, to associated uh, with uh, the Punjab uh, and Maharaja Ranjit Singh. And what we saw in 1947 after partition, many of these princely houses um, suffered at the consequence of independent India and, and their wealth, uh, their revenues, their incomes were greatly reduced. And many of them sold items in, in the 50s and 60s in England, so they came back to the England. They, the, the items were shipped here and uh, and, and sold either privately. Um, I, I, I've met um, princely houses where you know, collections of arms and armour um, were sold privately. Even uh, like uh, like uh, guns, etc., were sold um, to uh, military dealers. Um, and these items are now sort of coming up, and and they hold a, a great value because at that time. Uh, these princely rulers just wanted money just to survive. So that's how many of the items um, en ended up here. Um, and obviously you have items which were sold by former governor generals. Now we can argue were they stolen, were they gifted, were they given? Because there were a lot of gifts given by, again, uh, by uh, the princes as well. Not just uh, the, uh, the the princes in the Lord Darbar, not only the, the, the courtiers like, you know, for example, Rajat Dhyan Singh, who was the Prime Minister, he gave gifts to British generals, etc., as uh, to get favours in return. So there were, and we've got records of these gifts being given, and I've seen uh, Providence notes where uh, certain Sardars in the Lahore Darbar had um, given gifts to the British. So we can't say that everything that comes up was stolen or looted uh, from the Punjab and it should go back. Now, the question about going back, I, I obviously believe that items should stay here because I think they're they're looked after, they're preserved here. They're, we have you know, the facilities here, the museums, which can display them. Um, for example, the, the golden throne of Ranjit Singh. Now, if that was in India uh, or in Punjab, do you think that would be in the same condition that it is today? I don't know. I, I don't think I don't think it would. No, it'd probably be melted down by now and made into some sort of items of jewellery. Um, you know, I. Yeah, I can tell you a really interesting story, um, which I was actually going to say for the Sikhs in Britain <laughs> part. But um, during the um, during the sixties, late sixties, early seventies, uh, one of my grandfather's um, brothers was peddling uh, in uh, in Norfolk, and he knocked on this lady's house and uh, to sell his wares, and she said, uh, "Please come in." And when he went inside, she had behind the sofa, sitting on, uh, leaning against the wall, an oil painting of Dalip Singh, Maharaja Dalip Singh. And he said to her, oh, this is the, our our great king, this is Dalip Singh, this is the, the Maharaja of the Sikhs. And she told him that um, her grandfather had known uh, Dalip Singh, etc. And you know, that's how she had ended up with this painting. So my, my grandfather's brother said, well, I'd be happy to buy this you know you you can have my wares don't pay me just let me have the painting because it means so much to me 
And the lady agreed and she gave him the painting uh, for the objects he was selling. And he brought the painting back to Ipswich where uh, my mother was born. And my mother remembers seeing that painting and the painting was at her house for around six months where her uncle had stored it until such time he could take it to India. And um, a year later, he took the painting back to India and uh, he gave it to the um, Bangla Sahib Gurdwara. Now, we tried so much afterwards to go to Bangla Sahib Gurdwara and find out what happened to this painting, and nobody knows. So this painting, which was firstly given, has is gone missing. So it just shows you that you know the the cataloging, the you know the safety of these items. And now I, I wish that painting had stayed here because I think it would have been. You know, we would have known which location is. It would have been um, displayed. Had they maybe even taken it to the Thetford Museum, it might still be on display there. So it's sad because it's something we've lost now, and and maybe one of the committee members <laughs> has, has got it hanging up in his house. So. Um, yeah, and and it, it, even like the the golden throne of uh, Ranjit Singh. I mean, every year they they take the the, um, the chair out for 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 uh, investigating, for checking it, and for any deterioration, and 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 they uh, and they conserve it which is immense because you, you only have to go to the Punjab and see the items they've got in the museums and, and the condition uh, they're in and the way they handle it. Um, for example, I, I gave my uh, the, the Deep Singh jacket. I've got a jacket belonged to Maharaja Deep Singh, which I gave to uh, Hampton Court when they were doing an exhibition. And they took the jacket in and at about a month later, they sent me a report of all the restoration work that needed to be done for this jacket to be displayed at the palace. And I was like, well, how much, it, how much is this going to cost me? And they said, no, it's not going to cost you a penny. We're, we are going to get all this work done for you because we want the jacket to be in pristine condition when it goes on display. And they literally spent thousands of pounds on my jacket to get it preserved. And uh, now tell me who does that? What country does that? <laughs> and, and that's when somebody, some other country's heritage, I mean, I can't see Punjab doing that on on their own on their own heritage, and here we have you know a, a British palace. We've got Hampton Court spending money in conservation on on, on a sick item. Yeah. Yeah. There is. And I'll just give you a little another nugget which uh, might interest you is that um in Amritsar right behind the the Ramgarh Bungas we have the two towers um the in in the bazaar there was uh, used to be a bakery and I I I went there about five or six years ago, uh, a friend of mine had told me that this bakery was part of an old Havili belonging to one of the Ramgariya Sardars, um, one of Jassar Singh's cousins or brothers. And I went to the chap and um, he said to me, yeah, come on, I'll show it to you. So he took me to the back, opened this old Havili up. And 
took me upstairs and literally this building was on its last legs you know the it was so weak we could when we went upstairs we could only walk around the edges he told me not to walk in the center of the room because the the floor was actually going to collapse and it was literally covered in frescoes i mean i mean floor to ceiling in frescoes seek frescoes uh, it was a hindu guy who actually owned the, uh, the bakery and the ceiling was like the shish mahal all those little mirrors mirrored ceiling all done in gold it was absolutely beautiful it was very similar to the the, the, the patiala palace the, the shishmal palace in patiala and he told me that um he had gone to the sgpc had spoken to the golden temple and said look i've got this building this is your history you should be saving this you know take this from me you know um but and um they weren't interested and i went there about a year or two years later uh, and the building had gone it been demolished and uh, a new development had taken had, had been put in its place so just shows you and that's on the footsteps of the golden temple right outside you know literally a 30 second walk so it just shows you how we don't you know we we're not putting that effort in now into our own heritage which is on our footstep and on our doorstep um and that's something we really need to look, analyze and look, and look into Right, so Victor Dilip Singh was Maharaja Dilip Singh's elder son, and and was Victor's wife. She was the daughter of the Earl of Coventry, um, and Alice Blanche. And an interesting story. Actually, I'll tell you an interesting story. When I was uh, researching, when I started researching um, the Dilip Singhs, Victor was one of the uh, family members, one of the children, who we did not know. Um, he's, well, we did not know what happened to him. We didn't know where he had, he had died and, and where he was buried. We knew the location of pretty much all of the other children. But Victor's was the, Victor was the elusive one. And just during my research, I tracked down a distant cousin of the present Earl of Coventry. And uh, this chap was in his 80s. And um, we became very good friends. We, we, we started communicating regularly by letter and and. and, and um, uh, and on and conversing on the telephone and during that time he told me that um he was the only person uh, only surviving person who had actually attended the funeral of lady anne or who was his great aunt and he said anne was living with my family uh towards the end of her life she'd become elderly that they had no the um, uh, Singh's son victor and anne never had any children uh, and after victor died she she came to live with uh, with his family so the first question I put to him is, um, how comes Victor 
and Anne never had any children because they were married for the best part of 20 years. And he said, funny enough, I asked that question to my auntie myself, he said. And he said, well, my aunt said to me, I've uh, never told anyone this before. Uh, but when I got married, Queen Victoria called me to Buckingham Palace. And she made me swear that I never give Prince Victor an heir and that I should take him away uh, out of England, take him away from England. And she said, I kept my oath uh, and my queen's command till the end. And that was Lady Anne's words. So that we know that Prince Victor and Anne, after they got married, they settled in Paris. Uh, Victor was actually quite um, quite a gambler. He was an addicted gambler. Uh, he liked bridge playing. Um, he liked playing uh, cards with heavy state card, card games. And he loved the casinos. Um, and if you like casinos, there's nothing better than Monte Carlo. <laughs> so he spent a lot of time in Monte Carlo. And um, he had actually decided when he when he dies, he wants to be buried in Monte Carlo. And for that purpose, he had bought a special plot in Monte Carlo, which was like a, a, a you could say, an exclusive cemetery um, for the, the rich and famous. Uh, and I never knew this at the time. I never knew Victor was buried there. And I obviously asked when I spoke to this um, this cousin, distant cousin of the Coventry family, he said, well, yes, I, I, I went to Lady Anne's funeral in 19, I think it was 1956. And that's when Anne died. But he goes, I was only a young boy, um, a young teenager. But I remember it was on the hill overlooking Monte Carlo, the, 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 the sea at Monte Carlo. And that's all he could remember because you know, he obviously had never gone back. So I, at that time, was at university and I had a, a French foreign um, student, uh, exchange student working, um, studying with me. And I asked her to translate a, a letter. I, I wrote a letter. Uh, which I uh, wanted to write to the uh, the the mayor of Monaco, and um, to find out you know where Victor's um, grave would be, and she she, she uh, translated the letter for me and sent the letter and um, she actually put her address on it because he would contact her and about two or three weeks later um, he had a she had a reply from the from the from the mayor of Monaco that um, or from his office that uh, they had located. Um, the, the grave and um, both Anne and Victor were buried there and they were actually inviting me to come and see it so if they if I want to if I want to come out to the south of France um, they would they would personally um, would personally give me a tour of the of, of, of the uh, of the place and I, this is in 2003 just in time for my first book I, I flew out there for a weekend um, and um, they were really interested in, to know more about Victor because this was a grave which nobody attended to and they knew very little about Prince Victor. And um, they actually wanted to shift all the graves at that time from this exclusive graveyard, which originally had been right um, on the outskirts of the town. But obviously over the course of 100 years, the, the graveyard has, the, the town had expanded and this graveyard now lie sort of lie right in the center of town and they wanted to shift all the graves and they were looking for um, the various descendants to get their permissions so um, that was another box which was ticked when I finally uh, discovered where Victor um, uh, was buried
Well, with the Jindar one, it was quite the reverse because I, I actually never found Jindar. Jindar's gravestone. I think the gravestone found me. Um, I had a um, a call uh, one day from Kensal Green uh, Crematorium because they were undergoing uh, restoration works at one of their chapels, the, the Dissenters Chapel, which is uh, the, the non-believers chapel. Now, I always knew Jindar oh, had a, a service here. Um, in, in, in the UK and then her body um, was laid to rest temporarily until Maharaja Dalip Singh got permission to take his mother's remains to India for its last rites and I knew that that place where she had uh, had been or her, her coffin had been stored was Kensal Green so basically her, her body had been stored in the catacombs which are in the basement part of the of the dissenter chapel at that time uh, it actually, during the Victorian era, it was very fashionable, rather than burying um, the dead, to actually store their coffins in, in catacombs, which so they would literally be stacked in specially made shelves. And, and people would go to visit their sort of deceased relatives or, or loved ones and sit beside them um, or, and maybe read a book or whatever um, and, and spend time. So that's where Jindar's uh, remains were kept. But obviously, after the Victorian era finished, that sort of became it became it, it fell into uh, uh, disrepair. The um, the chapel was falling to bits. The, the catacombs were actually raided by people who wanted to loot the coffins uh, for, um, for for metal, for iron, etc. Uh, a lot of coffins were actually broken up, and the chapel obviously was going through extensive um, extensive uh, renovation work and when they were doing the restoration or they're clearing up the catacombs they found a part of a slab which was a marker for uh, one of the graves which had some Gurumukhi writing and because it was and they obviously went down their records and they found that there was a, only a handful of Indians who had been kept at that time um, in, in that catacomb um, they had contacted me saying we think we found a gravestone. We, we think it might belong to Maharani Jindgur. And he sent, they sent me a picture. And straight away, I could read Punjabi Jindgur was actually written on this slab, just a half a piece. And showed it to my father, and you know, he translated it fully for me. And I said, you know, you need to find the rest of these pieces because it's an amazing we need to put this together. So they found another two pieces. Unfortunately, they didn't find one corner still missing. Um, I, I, I went down to visit them at Kensal Green and we had to put on special suits to go down to the catacombs. Quite freaky, but there was literally dozens of coffins which were just been uh, smashed um, and, and where caskets, uh, iron caskets had been um, stolen. And there were just bags and bags of, these black bags were lying in the corner and I said, what are these? And they just said, they're just body parts and stuff. And I was quite freaked out. So they showed me the exact spot where Jindar's um, um, coffin had been kept and then showed me the parts of the uh, the fragments of the stone of the it's, it's a large i would say about or oh, a two foot by two foot stone and um i arranged for this to be uh, restored we sent it to a, a monumental uh, memorial chap to uh, put the stone pieces together we had it cleaned but literally it was black uh, these were these were underground for for around 150 years because what had happened, obviously, when the, when the Leap Singh came to take his mother's remains to India, the, the marker had been smashed, the body had been taken out, uh, the, what's it, the coffin had been taken out, and then these slabs had just been thrown to one side. And miraculously, they had stayed there under, you know, under these catacombs and, and not thrown away or disposed of, but they were just thrown aside in one corner of this, of this chapel. 
So we had this restored, and then I uh, spoke to the um, the chapel. I said, "Look, what's your you know, um, what's your aim? What, what are you going to do with this with with, with this um, with this stone?" Um, and they said, "Well, Peter, you've restored it. Um, we'd be happy to go with whatever you think is right because it's of no use to us." And I arranged. Uh, well, I went to quite the other. I went to quite a few of the other mainstream museums, such as the British Museum and the V&A. They were all happy to take the gravestone, but none of them would guarantee that it would be displayed. And I thought, that's not what I want. I want this thing, I want this item, this artifact to be shown because it should be on display because we don't have many or, I know, there's not, there's only a handful of objects which were, or which belong to Marani Jindgord, uh, and this was one of them, and it, and it should be on display. And I spoke to Thetford Museum, which was the museum founded by the Leipzig Sun, uh, and they said, oh, we'd be more than happy to take this and uh, we'll put it on display. That was part of the agreement, which I reached them. And they've had it since 2008. For the last 13 years, it's been on display at Fertford Museum. Really long. So Princess Pauline is Maharaja Dalip Singh's daughter from his second marriage when he married um, Ada. He had two daughters. Um, in uh, One was born in, in Russia, one was born in, in Paris, um, Pauline and Irene. And Pauline um, lived most of her life. She, she got married. She actually married a soldier who actually died in the First World War. And she uh, died, um, well, I, I, let me rephrase that. She actually disappeared during the Second World War. And none of the other family members knew what happened to her because obviously France was, was an occupied, but part, partly occupied territory um, during the war. And she just went off the radar. And in the 1970s, uh, in the night, sorry, in the 1950s, uh, Professor Gundasing was an eminent historian uh, of Patiala University, visited uh, Princess Bamba in Lahore. And he interviewed her and asked about the whereabouts of her siblings. And Princess Pauline was the one that she could not give a date of death for or where she died. And over the sort of basic years and in, in, in books, all we said is that she died during the Second World War, probably died in a concentration camp. And that's what I probably believed as well, because I thought that's the sort of the answer, because it's either in a concentration camp or she died or a, like a labor camp or she died during the, the bombing uh, when, the, when France was being bombed. Um, a few years ago, I think it was 2016, a, a chap who was researching Princess Pauline's husband's family uh, contacted me, said that he was doing his family history and Princess Pauline, well, well, it wasn't called Pauline, it was called Pauline Torrey because she'd married Colonel Torrey. Uh, um, Pauline Torrey's name had come up and obviously when he Googled it, he found out there was a, a the leaps in connection and he got in touch with me. And I was so excited when he said that and I said, well, have you got a date of death? He goes, well, yes, because in the family, there's a death certificate. 
And I thought, well, that's that's all I need. So once I got the date of death, I was able to find out her exact location uh, in Paris where she died. So we, we, we knew it was, we knew it was um, France, but she actually died in a place called Pau, a P-A-U. And I contacted um, the, um, the, the crematorium, um, obviously delved into it much more deeper and find out that the crematorium lies next to a sanatorium. And a sanatorium was a place uh, in those days where people were sent to uh, who had TB, where at that time TB, tuberculosis was not, um, you wouldn't, if you had TB, you wouldn't recover for it. And you were sent to a sanatorium to basically live out your last days or keep away uh, or be kept in quarantine from, from the rest of the people. Uh, she had got TB during the war. She had died and then she was buried in the uh, in the cemetery next to the sanatorium. Um, they couldn't even contact a member of her family the, the war was on. Even her belongings were not collected from the sanatorium, which were which were later went missing or, or, or thrown away. So I I worked closely with the uh, cemetery, uh, and then we found out that obviously these um, particular bodies were these sanatorium victims because they were just uh, basic uh, burials with with a marker. Um, after that. Because there was no families or nobody to ask about them, they were all removed and they were put into a mass grave. Um, so sadly, her her remains were removed out with all the other victims of, of TB from that era and put into one mixed sort of mass grave. Um, and obviously now they can't be identified. So we all we know is that this is the area or the patch of the cemetery uh, where her remains lie. Um, they do lie there because they've got it on record. So now I'm in touch with the. Um, with the um, burial ground and we was actually meant to go there last year but um, it's going to be in 2022 uh, we're going to arrange to put a memorial plaque to Princess Pauline um, so she uh, will be remembered and people will know that this is um, Maharaja Ranjit Singh Maharaja Ranjit Singh's granddaughter and the Singh's daughter is buried in this small corner um, of France which is really a, a sad story a sad end um, to um uh, Princess Pauline's life. Just continuing then with this um, kind of commemorating these individuals from Maharaj Ranjit Singh to his family. Um, one of the things that I came across that you, you're currently working on is a statue to Prince Frederick and Princess Sophia in the, at Tetford. Now, I just want to ask you, why do you think that is important um, and, and what is involved also in kind of getting this kind of from idea to it actually being there well the initial idea was the uh, the town council's idea they refer to the uh, these three children in particular as the super siblings the, the leap sing super siblings as i mentioned earlier and um they do thrive on the tourism they get on the back of the, the leap sing story and these three characters obviously frederick in particular was a great benefactor to the town he he gave a lot to the town and this is a, a way that the town can give something back um, to Frederick, you know, in his memory, and obviously with the with Sophia, with her suffragette story, the last couple of years, we know her history has been really, really, really been told with. Not only the um, the she's um, she's on the plinth of the suffragette statue in Parliament, but also um, she had a poster stamp uh, to commemorate the votes for women movement, which came out uh, a couple of years ago. 
And I think there's just been a general uh, increase uh, in people wanting to know more about Sophia Deleuze. She's a very interesting character, uh, a great feminist, um, a, a character of empowerment. And now with Catherine's story coming to light with her activities in saving these Jewish families from Nazi Germany, um, they want to have the whole three of them remembered in, in, in one monument. And um, obviously this will drive in tourism as well, um, not only sick, non-sick um, audiences as well, but I think it's something for us as well to go and visit so we can, you know, we can remember them as well. And it's something which they will be, you know, immortalized in, in 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 these statues so i think it's nice that we um, you know we're, we're in an age where we're looking at toppling statues that we've got statues of people we can relate to which should be put up mm, i like that i like that a lot and i think that's a brilliant way of really kind of summarizing that that in that kind of the why we should be doing certain things and yeah no couldn't disagree no this is a question that actually um so uh, I'm sure you're aware the UK Punjab Heritage Association put on these regular webinars. The other week they had one with Susan Strong and she was discussing um, art within India um, and obviously touched upon um, Sikh art within India, etc. Now, a question that popped up then, and this was actually from someone who, like someone else in, who, who was watching this webinar that I remembered because I thought it'd be a good question to ask you was, are you aware of any of Maharaj and Inji Singh Ji's family visiting any of the museums that would have then had his items on display? So for argument's sake, the, the, the example that was given in, in this webinar, the question that was provided was, considering Ranjit Singh's throne is already in London, did some of his grandchildren at any point see it or interact with it or know where it was or like, Surely they would have been aware of something. Well, we had the Indian Museum in Kensington and uh, Ranjit Singh's chair, uh, Golden Front, uh, would have been uh, on show there. And, and, and no doubt the the princesses, um, who obviously had a London residence, would have seen it. I know uh, much of the the art collection, the Scherf painting collection, which is now in the, the Hall Fort uh, Princess Bamba collection, Used to actually uh, was actually loaned by Princess Bamba to to Kensington uh, Museum, which was the sort of the Indian Museum at that time before the V&A. So I'm not saying that she would have seen Sea Cardinals, but certainly her Sea collection, her family Sea collection, she had personally loaned to. Um, no, 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 not here. a problem. I think that this is um, why it's interesting asking these so questions because you just don't know which way question. it's going to go, and actually that's the fun of it. Um, but no, fair. Just then. Coming to um, an item that I think got a lot of people's attention, and this is also because for the amount that it sold for, um, is the Gibson statue of the Leap Singh, which eventually sold for 1.7 million by Bonhams, I think a couple of years ago. Um, I think there's a similar statue of Maharaj Jeet Singh Ji as well. Um, but anyway, coming back to this one, um, I just wanted to get an idea of what your involvement was in relation to this statue and how you kind of helped the auction house in this instance. Yeah, I, I knew about this statue for, for many years because many of the, the, the former servants or uh, descendants of former servants I had uh, interviewed and met over the years always spoke of this statue and um, 
I, I was always trying to look for it, always hunt, trying to hunt it down. And um, I never knew it would pop up into auction before I, before I found it. I actually remember a couple of years before it came up in auction, I was contacted by somebody um, on Saturday evening saying that they have the Deleepsing, this Deleepsing bust. And I was like, oh, my God, I found it. And I said, where are you? And I said, I'll come and see you in the morning. I, I, I drove down Sunday morning um, and uh, went to Norfolk and uh, went to their, their farmhouse and they bought this statue out, which was like actually uh, a statue of Sinbad the sailor, and I was really disappointed that day. <laughs> so, um, so that was that's how eager I was to see uh, or, or find this Gibson statue. And when when Bond actually contacted me when when it actually came in, um, they invited me down to come and uh, look at the statue, and it was the most beautiful piece of sculpture that I had seen. It it was huge. You know, it took actually three or four men to actually lift this statue. That's how heavy it was. And um, I, had, I had quite a few images in my collection of that statue um, where it was on display in Blow Norton Hall in one of the um, attic rooms. Um, it was also on display um, later on in, the, in Princess Bamba's house in the garden. It was, on a, it was on a pedestal. She had it outside. And um, so I, I, I helped um, with some of the research and I started sort of, because we knew now where the statue was, I started to sort of find out what happened after Bamba died and it, this statue popping up in auction in 2007. And I actually found out after Bamba died in, in 57, the, the statue was actually left in, on, the, on a pedestal in the front garden of the house. And it was there for around 20, 25 years. And, and this was in the village of Blown Norton. And nobody batted an eyelid. Nobody took any notice of it. And then what happened was that um, in the late 70s, the owner of the cottage, her son was an alcoholic. And he tried to sell this bus to the people in the local village or in the local pub for about 50 pounds. But there were no takers. Nobody wanted to buy this statue. And I was actually giving, um, just be before I was actually uh, found this, I was actually giving a talk in the village of Blown Norton about, uh, about this bus. And I was telling people, I was saying, you know, that this statue had belonged to your village and it was offered for, for £50 um, and it sold for £1.7 But nobody in this village purchased it. And all of a sudden, this chap stood up. This is about 10 years ago. He stood up and he said, an elderly chap, in, in about, 80, about 85 years old. And he said, excuse me, but um, I was offered that marble bust for £40 by by Mr. Crow, but I refused the statue because I thought it uh, was a voodoo doll, so I never purchased it. He said, Mr. Vance, you know what? If I had bought it for £40, it would be sitting in my barn right now, and I would say to you, come with me right now, and you can take it home. <laughs> and that was the exact words, and I, and I, and I actually cracked up. So the, the statue actually went to auction, and, I, and um, I, I remember saying to the auction house, I said, look, um, you're valued at 25 but... <laughs> If an offer of hundred thousand pound came, would you take it? Uh, and they said, "Well, we would, but we think just the the interest and the publicity the statue is generating is just too much. You know, it's it's worth much more in publicity." Um, and literally, the I think the opening bid was a hundred thousand pounds, and the hammer fell at one point seven million. And I think we was all shocked at that time. Um, and uh, I believe it went to a member of the Qatar uh, royal family. Um, so, so the statue of Monarch Zalipsindji is now sat in some Qatari king or prince's office. 
I believe so. It, it was an anon- it was an anonymous buyer, but uh, the rumours that I heard were that it had gone to a Qatar family. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can it, imagine. Specifically, yeah, wanted imagine. because it was wow. an Oriental. Okay. It was a figure no, with a insane. turban, um, not because it was the deep sing. Yeah, one point seven million as well. Wow. How much do you think, like, so putting aside the fact that obviously the publicity and the interest helps to lift the price, but like for what it's worth, like how much do you think it, it, it is like kind of truly valued? I don't know if that's even a question that's answerable, but kind of at an estimate level, like, do you think it was worth that kind of... No, at that time it was. I mean, what the the valuation they'd put at it, I think twenty five to thirty thousand was probably what the statue was worth. At fifty thousand, if you want to say yes, it's a the leap statue, and you really want to pay over the top for it. Um, so it, it went well over its asking price. Uh, but I said, as I said, it was the the publicity which it caused, and I think that had a knock on effect on a lot of the leap items thereafter. People all of a sudden thought, hold on, we've got something of the leap that must be worth. Uh, that must be worth millions too, you know, uh, and that was the um, general uh, perception. Um, there was a, ch- a chap who had known me for many years and he had Prince Frederick's uh, Purdy gun. And I always said to myself, look, if you, ever, if you ever want to sell it, you know, contact me, I'll be happy to buy it. And then after that bus sold at uh, Bonhams, his daughter contacted me and said, Mr. Vance, with uh, my father's put the, the, the gun in Bonhams. You know, if, if you're after buying it, so I said, look, pay your father to, you know, to to buy it, uh, to sell it to me directly. I'll I'll give him X amount of money, and um, she said, no, no, no. Uh, we think it's only fair it should go to Bonds, and it um, sold for much less than what I offered them. Um, offered them, and um, a couple of years later, when I went down uh, to the village to to, to to well to do my research, I bumped into that same chap. And he couldn't look at me in the face. And I said, look, I said, I said John, what's, what's, what's the matter? And uh, his friend said to me, look, he just feels embarrassed because his family had forced him to put that gun in auction thinking, you know, well, the bus sold for 1.7 million. So would this, <laughs> so would this gun? And it literally didn't, it made a fraction of what they thought. And he said, I should have just given that gun to Peter, you know, because it, you know, it meant more to him because you know, he's the one who's researching the leap sing and it would have, he would have collected it part of the, the, the Leipzig collection and it would have gone with the other items. So he, he said, I know uh, that was his own words. And I, I said, look, never mind. You know, th- these things happen. Um, see, for me as a, as a collector, it's, I'm a very different collector. Some collectors who will go to an auction house and, and it's like, you've got to buy this at any cost. For me, the buzz is in finding the item, at, not only at a bargain, but actually researching it, sourcing it. Uh, and getting it and saying, look, wow, I've discovered this. No one's seen it. It's not been seen in public, and but I've managed to uh, source it and get it, get its history. So it's it's about the bus for me is is finding finding the bargain um, in the seek items, not not just going into an auction room, which I find yeah, a yeah, bit I can, boring. I can well imagine as well. And well, you end up paying sold for one point seven million. And to be honest, money. from the limited <laughs> kind of. Um, research that i've done over the last few months in relation to just kind of looking at some of the items sold by auction houses in relation to seek art and history um they tend to go for way 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 over the reserve price that they're given um and so yeah it's not surprising then to hear the same thing happened uh, with this bust um okay now then just kind of coming to kind of the last and probably the most juicy topic really in, in, in amongst all of this in relation to the kind of the heirs and descendants of Maharaj Jinjit Singh Ji is 
um, and I'm sure a lot of people listening are probably waiting for this part because you've been posting a few bits and pieces about these so-called illegitimate hairs to the to, to, to the Sikh Empire. So I just wanted to get a little bit more information then about what you know about some of these descendants. They were born not from the family. They were born out of out of the, out of wedlock, or they didn't come from from the line from the, from the marriage. So uh, that that's why uh, they refer to the illegitimate um, is to the family. But um, so yeah, some really interesting uh, cases have come to me over the years, over the last, sort of the last 20, 25 years, um, not only from um, illegitimate children of Maharaja, but also of, of his sons as well, of, of, of Victor uh, and Frederick's um, um, uh, descendants. So um, I think some of the ones I, I put up was one of was uh, Sid Hammond, which was a really interesting chap because he was the, one of the first ones I, I, I went to see in, in 97, 1997. We still lived in Fetford, only a couple of miles from Elwoodden. And he strongly believed that Dalip Singh was his great-grandfather. And he showed me keepsakes, which the family had uh, been given. Um, he'd shown me um, a picture of his, although he looked he looked very English, um, but his uh, daughter's uh, daughter was actually um, look, looked very Asian. So it skipped a generation. Um, but his father also had black hair, but his grandfather, but his grandfather didn't. So sometimes it showed uh, a little skipping of generations. But when they were young, uh, he would tell me that they would be called um, the school children would tease them as the young princes, and that's when he questioned his parents, asking them why, or questioned his mother um, why they, they were called the princes. And he said, "Well, the rumor was it that your grandfather was um, was the uh, was the was a child of Dalip Singh." Um, his great grandmother had worked uh, as a maid at the hall, and it said that she had come home um, expectant one day. Um, and like it was with those times and those houses where, where servants did get pregnant, um, they would be looked after by the lords or, or whatever who were the lords of the manors, and they would pay for the child's education. And sadly, the the husband, if there was a husband, he would just basically get on with it and just treat the child and bring the child up as his own. So that that was one of the cases which I which I did, and, and that had um, a lot of response um, on Instagram. And um, there's there's been several others where where people have discovered that um, an ancestor they've been researching all of a sudden has the middle name of Singh or Dalip, and they're like, "What? Where's this come from? Where's Singh and Dalip come from in our middle names?" And they've researched and found out that their ancestor before that had had actually worked uh, for Frederick or worked for Dalip Singh. Um, and hence, they believe that uh, maybe the child was uh, was born um, from the Maharaja or, or Prince Frederick, and uh, the middle name was given um, of their father, respective father, and uh, the education. So in was total, also paid how for. many illegitimate heirs and descendants uh, by, have you uh, so far been able to discover? Well, I, I don't know how many are. Um, Oh God, I don't know if family are genuine, but I would say around a dozen have contacted me over the over the years. Uh, maybe a little bit more. Some I thought, mm, okay, the story doesn't add up with the dates that match up. But some of them were, were really, really um, 
uh, looked really genuine. Uh, the, the images they sent me, there was there was one lady who sent me a picture of her grandmother, and she was a spitting image of Sophia. It was a spitting image, and I thought, wow. Um, and they always believed that um, Frederick was their, um, but it was their great grandfather, and, and the family still believe that today. Um, the Hammond family actually are. They, no, they're, they're so adamant that every year the the family gathers at the gravesite to pay respects to the Maharaja. Uh, and there's about 50 members of the family now, but they all gather there because they believe that the Leap Singh was his ancestor. And they're not after anything. They're not after any sort of DNA testing or after any inheritance. But that is, you know, they've been told and they strongly uh, believe that the Leap Singh so, and even is this, their, this last uh, case that we've spoken about, like how many of them do you think are more likely than not to be true? So I think the, the one that you spoke about, Sid Hammond, like that kind of adds up, but how many... His yeah, his story did add up. His dates add up, and uh, the, the the chap was in his late eighties, nineties when he when he met me, um, and only recently her well his uh, great niece contacted me, and she's still following the story, so she's still adamant, and uh, she, and um, the, and she's given me some more information and, and names and dates, and uh, I, I believe um, you know, it's it's very likely. Obviously, we can't be hundred percent unless there's some sort of DNA. But, but many of these families don't want DNA because they don't want to prove, to, they've got nothing to prove to anyone else. It's for themselves. They're happy with it. They're not after anything where they need to do a DNA test to prove anything. Um, but there is, there are some other um, descendants which we've come across. One or two very, very genuine cases. And without revealing too much, uh, all I can say is watch this space because uh, something's going to be coming up soon, uh, what we're working on. Um, which is going to be um, uh, for a, uh, a nice. major television channel. So it's nice. a program it we're sounds working definitely on. really interesting. And, uh, I'll tell you more now, later just on. One last question it. before uh, watch this we wrap up this, <laughs> this conversation, this topic about the the royal, the Sikh royal family, as I think um, I'm going to call this podcast. Is so we've spoken about the illegitimate heirs, but in terms of the legitimate ancestry, kind of from Maharaj and Jeet Singh Ji downwards, where does it end, and who is kind of the last surviving? Um, descendant from that lineage. Well, because there's no apart apart from the the ones I mentioned, the the, um, the descendants that we have in the Punjab are not direct descendants. So there's a there's many families such as the Sundarwalis who were the the cousins of the royal family. So their their lineage goes much up higher up from uh, an North Singh and Bud Singh Ranjit Singh's great grandfather and great grandfather. Um, so there was obviously offsprings of the the children of, for example, I've met descendants of uh, Bishora Singh um, and uh, Multana Singh, etc. But those were adopted. So they you know, down the line, they weren't they, they they never had any children. So they adopted a child. They're not blood. Um, they're not blood descendants, but they have that title where they are the descendants they're known as the uh, descendants of say um, Prince Multan Singh or Kashmir Singh etc but um, as for, for lineage there's, there's no direct descendants uh, that we can say yes that this is uh, Ranjit Singh's or in fact Dalip Singh's direct descendants um, so probably the Sandawalis are probably the sort of the nearest ones we can get but as I said they're more cousins of the royal family so you'll have to go for much higher up the family tree okay no that's really interesting um, so I'm to, assuming um, that none of Say the Leap Singh's daughters had any um, kids? 
That's right. So it's quite ironic that the, the Maharaja had eight children and not one of them had uh, an issue. So the, the, the family line, the, fam- the direct family line. Wow. Um, okay. Seized, 1957. Um, Prince Bamba died in 1957. Well, quite... So she was, was the, um, the last year. Yeah. No, it's not. No, that's what I said when I when I was doing. When I was fortunate enough to do my research in the late '90s when I was at uni, and it was only forty um, uh, odd years after the the princess's death. So there was still a lot of people around at that time um, who knew. I remembered the princess, and they would sit and I would sit with them, and they would talk like she, she was their best friend or whatever. No, it was it was it was amazing. You know, they could tell me so much personal. Um, um, stuff about the princesses, which you which you would not get in a book, you know, or or in a record or whatever, or in, a, um, in any archival um, records office. So um, I, I think I was very lucky to to get in there There's at that just time. Two things that I want to ask so actually before wrapping up. So the first one is: is there the, anything the in particular that you have discovered or found out during your research and talking to all these incredible people that you think is worth sharing? And secondly, for people listening who, and especially kind of like students or people kind of just leaving university and kind of thinking about getting into research and history and all the rest of it, kind of what would your advice be? Well, when I started researching, as I said, purely accidental, but um, the sort of the goal I gave myself was that I need to find out what happened to all these children, because the eight children we knew and, and we never knew where, where some of these died or where they died or where they were buried. And, and I wanted to establish that so I know where every child, you know, the eight children, where they died and where they settled, et cetera. Um, and thankfully, I, I did that. And for me, that was a great personal goal. But there's still so much missing in between. There's, there's missing pieces of the jigsaw. There's, there's timelines where we, we don't know, you know what was Catherine doing all the time in, in, in the 20s and 30s in Germany. Um, what was Pauline doing in Paris? Um, why did Princess Irene, the youngest daughter of Maharaja de Lipsing, commit suicide off the uh, coast of Monte Carlo um, in, in the 1920s? Now, what drove her to it? So there's so much still unanswered. Um, and... I, I hope that my not only my books but of the work I've done inspires a whole new generation of uh, researchers and enthusiasts who will delve into this and and, and get to bottom to the bottom of many of these mysteries that we still don't know about. So that would um, I, I would say to 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 the next generation who are looking into um, a history and, and, and a Punjab and Sikh history, there's so much that we still don't know and it, it'd be so good to find out you know, these these missing pieces. And and obviously earlier I mentioned the, the Daughters of Ranjit Singh, which is, I, I think, is another opening, uh, another door which is open and I think it really needs to be looked into because that's something that we don't know about. And either it's been suppressed or and it's sadly been forgotten um, but now, you know, we're we're pushing for more um, sort of female and women's no, stories. I think that's something definitely. we should focus on. Um, and, and thank you. We should I've get absolutely that more, enjoyed it's, it's this conversation. Um, I, I've, I've, yeah, and I know we've got another one lined up for, for later on, which we'll do Most soon as well. Pleasure. And we'll, we'll, we'll get that done. But I think I've really enjoyed this. I just want to check that there's, there's nothing else that you want to include or mention or say before we kind of just wrap up.
No, I just want to say well, thank you. It's been a pleasure, and it's um, it's you now keep up the the great work you're doing um, uh, with these with these podcasts. Um, uh, it's uh, it's not only for it, everybody can learn from it. Myself as well. So um, I I will now be keeping an eye on your podcasts as well, and, and and looking at them. And you know, it's it's a great service you're doing um, as sort of the the new new generation. Um, you know, no, no, thank you so much. I think um, and, just and like finding yourself, more it's about just kind of an interest and a passion that's up. kind of and evolved into. No, no, that's absolutely not a problem. And, and, and thank you. Like, just, just nonetheless, I think I, I've really enjoyed it. Um, and hopefully people listening to it will have enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, definitely be in touch for, for the second part about Sikhs in Britain. So no, thank you. Thank you Great. for your evening. All right. Okay. All right. Sweet. Awesome. Um, take, care. take care. Goodbye. See you later. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye.